0: my hero is on the stage right now. Did anyone grow up with Dan Rather? Thank you, thank you, you thank you. I know he needs no introduction, but for 44 years, he was a news journalist at CBS. He was the voice of my childhood and before my childhood. He was in the civil rights era one of the lead journalists following around with Dr. Martin Luther King and going to voting polls and showing America what disenfranchisement looked like. America didn't know that before. He went to the Vietnam War and helped chronicle the Vietnam War. So he has been involved with everything from Iran-Contra to not all the way through 9-11. And what's most appreciated, Dan, is that On Facebook now, you have been the voice of rational thought for two and a half million people, and an entire generation now of young people are following your lead. So thank you. Well, thank you, Mark. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here. So I want to start with one thing, which is, uh, and I don't do plugs. I get books from everybody. But I recently read this book, What Unites Us. It stands recent book with Elliot Kirshner. They've written it together, What Unites Us. Now, you said something in that book where I want to start. You said, the institution of a free press in America is in a state of crisis greater than I have seen in my lifetime and perhaps in any moment in this nation's history. For somebody who covered all those things I already talked about, like, where are we at?
1: well where we are is uh... is uncharted territory for us as i've said certainly in my lifetime and i think in the history of the country we have had presidents before in fact it's a rare president who at one time or another hasn't felt uh, some hostility toward the press previously for example in the administration of president uh, richard nixon he hated the press and, uh... he took steps to try to silence the press, but nothing compared to what happened today. I would say that was the previous low mark, if you will. But even with President Nixon, that he never said such things as the press is the enemy of the people. He would he would single out individual press institutions, in some cases individual reporters. He usually used surrogates. He didn't say it himself. But at any rate, in the here and now, Uh, This is not normal, this is unprecedented that uh, we have a President of the United States who from his own mouth and his own tweets and his own policies has been engaged since the moment he took office, actually before, in a relentless campaign to undermine the public's trust of the press, the credibility of the press by way of destroying, and I use the verb measuredly, destroying one of the institutions that's responsible for checks and balances on his power. Now as we've seen he's engaged in attacks on almost every other institution that's designed to be a check on your party, uh, his power. This is the mark uh, of an autocratic uh, regime and an autocratic leader and we know from history what the dangers are when you have autocracy in the top level of power. Autocracy frequently leads number one, confusing nationalism with patriotism, a descent into extreme nationalism. We know from our history that extreme economic nationalism led to the in the 1920s, led to the Great Depression in the 1930s. Uh, racial nationalism, Aryan nationalism, as in Hitler and Nazism, led to Adolf Hitler. But the example, example in power, my point is that I do think and I say this gently and respectfully, we need to recognize that there's an effort to make it seem normal. Well, every president has problems and maybe President Trump carries it a little bit further, it's no big deal. This is a very big deal because it's indicative, as I say, of his effort to destroy the credibility of every institution that's to serve as a check and balance on it. So you and I had the opportunity
0: to talk about a, both, a book that we both uh, admire and respect, in The Garden of the Beast. And in the Garden of the Beast, they profile Nazi Germany before the rise of Nazism. And it's actual accounts of the U.S. ambassador in Germany and his daughter, actual letters, actual accounts. And it's like a frog in boiling water. It's a little bit of change the media, a little bit of install people into senior positions in the counterintelligence and intelligence state. It's a little bit of undermine the course. And then in one day... He went and wiped out hundreds and hundreds of his, killed hundreds of his adversaries. But by then, he controlled the media. By then, he controlled the courts. By then, he controlled the, 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 the uh, intelligence institutions. And the population broadly knew what had happened, but the media portrayed the spin very differently. And the business leaders at the time, and it's profiled in this book, did not speak up because they thought somebody else
1: would. Like, do you see some parallels with that? I do see parallels. I want to make it very clear uh, that, first of all, we are not, not yet anywhere near Adolf Hitler, even in his early stages. But there are indications that that's a direction in which we could be headed. And precisely because of what you just pointed out, if each individual person or each group of people, business leaders, legal leaders, take the, well, not for me to speak out, for someone else to speak out, then the potential is there is to go to that decline which you outlined. It's one of the reasons I wanted to do the book. I'm not here today to sell a copy of the book, uh, but I believe so strongly that overwhelmingly, the majority of people in this country are united uh, around some fundamental values. The rule of law, no person is above the law. That resonates today with what some of President Trump is trying to argue. Basically, he's trying to argue that a president is above the law. We thought we, time and again, underscored that that's not true. But we believe in the rule of law. We believe, we believe in the right to vote, one person, one vote. We've never been perfect in any of these things. But here's the point, that the American ideal, the ideal of America as a society, and this is the core of true patriotism, the willingness to be prepared to literally die for your country and have great love for your country, but to have humility, Humility is a key part of patriotism, as apart from nationalism, the humility to say we're never, we've never reached perfection, but we're in constant effort to reach perfection. Now we have a challenge to the very fundamental values. We're asked to believe that we're so divided that we can, we can never unite again around our fundamental values. And the argument is that we're so divided that we now must get into our into tribalism. We must just or a silo if you prefer them. Now, this is fundamentally un-American and we need to recognize it. That it's not a matter of being Republican or Democrat or conservative or reactionary or progressive. I, mean, I say of myself, I, you know, I'm not left-wing, I'm not right-wing, I'm not chicken-wing. <laughs> I, I, I'm an American who cares about the country and because, yes, I've traveled a few places and seen a few things, I, I see the peril that we're flirting with right now, which is one reason that I am you know, want to talk about these fundamental values.
0: So there's a good segue, which is you talk about tribalism and dividing people based on the fear of the other or creating this fear. Your book's actually called What Unites Us. Would you like him to read a small passage? What do you think? Thank you. Would you mind?
1: I would. Have Thank you. Well, this will be mercifully short. And for those of you who may have the book, and uh, you can follow in your hymnals on page uh, 270. (laughs) Uh, I understand that my time to shape and help the world is passing. This is the cycle of life. I hope now to inspire others to love this country, to pledge to work hard, to make it a healthier and more just place to live. I ultimately have faith in the basic decency of our American citizenry and indeed people around the globe i believe strongly that the core tenets that i love most about this nation can be a foundation for commonality and strength once more i believe in a wide and expansive vision of our national destiny and i believe in all of you to help make it a reality courage thank you, thank you, thank you for you. doing that thank you thank you, thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank you. One of the things we talked about is you feel this great obligation, having traveled the country and loving the country, and having these ideals that you've seen defended time and again to reach a broader group of people. And that in the past, when you had the platform of CBS, you had the ability to reach the audience. Of course, you have Facebook. But you want to work with this crowd to find a way to take what unites us and bring it into education. You want to find a way to take what unites us and maybe create a tech platform to tell stories about how we could be united rather than divided. And that's the conversation we had backstage. So do you just want to talk a little bit about that? And then I would just put it out to you guys. like You know how to get in touch with Upfront. I want to help Dan Rather take that message of unity and find a way to bring it to America.
1: Well, thank you very much, Mark. And again, I'm not here to sell the book. I'm not here to sell anything. Uh, yet. <laughs> but I, I do have in mind, I know from the reaction to the book, such things as, for example, there have been several teachers, but one in particular teachers, schoolteachers. Uh, she said she's going to take the summer off because she wants to prepare a curriculum built around the values that we spell out in the book because she laments as I do that the teaching of civics basic civics in the country has suffered grievously in recent years but look, you know, I'm a reporter who got lucky I'm not a political scientist, I'm not a philosopher, I'm certainly not a tech oriented person in particular but there's got to be a way and I'll, I'll come forward with you, that, you know I want to I do something big and I want to do something that makes a difference I don't know quite how to do that. If anybody has any ideas how to spread the word, not in way of of, uh, any um, financial benefit to myself, but to benefit the country, to build around these values because we are in some danger. You know, the the danger is is real and it's present that those who seek to exploit our divisions are showing signs of some success, and now is the time to stop that and to get back and around and say, look, we can differ about any number of things about policy, but there's some fundamental, quite a few fundamental American values that we can all see as common ground. And to teach that to young people and to spread that word with population, the whole is my dream. It may be too wild a dream, but that's what I dream. Well,
0: I think there's some people in the room who can help you. Um, you talk in the book about how we're a nation of immigrants. We're all immigrants. We all arrived here other than the less than one percent of Native Americans that we were less
1: kind to. And even they, mind you, supposedly came across the Siberian peninsula in the country. But we're we're all from some other place. You also talk in the book
0: about the shameful periods where we've limited Immigration to negative economic consequences, and you talked about the leadership of some in the Republican Party: Ronald Reagan, who granted amnesty; George Bush, who himself, uh, from your hometown, uh, reached out and said, "We need to reach out to Latinos. We understand what the demographic is." Like, where do you, where are we at today on immigration?
1: Well, where we're at on immigration is that, and I'm there's no joy in saying this, that the Republican Party. Uh, a large part of it, has moved very far to the right, which is in a more de- reactionary direction on immigration. That I, among other people, from time to time, have worried in our society is was the party in power moving too far to the left and taking some extreme position. But what's happened with the Republican Party, the sole of the Republican Party, which at one time, by the way, was a champion of the idea of we should take people from all over the world give them the opportunity for America to use their drive, their work ethic, their entrepreneurialism, it's now moved very far to the right. It has silenced most, if not all, of the voices in the Republican Party who adhere to what I consider our fundamental American value, which is recognizing how important immigration is to society. Look, we can all agree that we need to zero base our immigration policy. We need immigration reform. But what we have going on now in Washington is an effort to take us in the very hard right in the direction of nativism, and the next step from nativism is tribalism. In a society such as ours, multiracial, multi-ethnic, multi-religious, if we ever descend completely into the tribalism, a version of which is now being preached in the highest council of the government, then we're through as a democratic society based on the principles of freedom and democracy. You were
0: in the South in the civil rights era. You went to voting places where African-Americans who were legal citizens were disenfranchised and turned away. You created some visibility to that. In 2013, key provisions of the Voting Rights Act were actually struck down, five to four in the Supreme Court. And since then, we've seen states that are taking action to try and make it more difficult to get to the polls. You talk again in your book about how hard it is to get to the poll. If you're a working class person on a nine to five shift it's not okay to just say I'm going to come in late that day. What do we do to make sure that all Americans have a right to vote and what does it mean to you? What's the importance of it to
1: society? Well, first of all, as I mentioned earlier, this is one of the fundamentals, one of the key values. That overwhelmingly, the majority of Americans agree on, and that is the right to vote. That's the ideal. But from time to time in our history, in fact, for a very long time in our history, we limited that too severely. People of color couldn't vote. And you're quite right, in the 1960s, I knew people literally paid with their lives trying to ensure that people of color, particularly African Americans, could vote. But e- well before that, in the 19th century, it was considered left-wing, maybe even of some communist Bolshevik idea that women could vote. It's been a constant struggle for us to live up to our ideal that one person, one vote. Now, in a very narrow sense, in, in recent years, there's been a revival of the, of the line of thought that goes, my party is the best part of the country. And in order to keep that party in power, get it in power, we need to limit the ability to vote for certain segments of the population, African Americans, Latinos, go down the line. And I think most people, this is a guess, are maybe vaguely aware of this, of this new effort to look at segments of the population, Latinos being one, and saying, you have to make, you have to reduce the number of Latinos who can get to the polls, because if we, in this instance, Republicans don't do that, we're going to lose elections this I would say to you is again is not a partisan matter this is un-American thought and it's taking hold in more places and in more insidious ways that people are are, are aware of now we you know we are worried about Russian influence on the election uh, and we should be this last election but we should be looking to ourselves to be concerned about limiting people's right to vote based on their color their ethnicity or their religion. You talked about something in the book that I wasn't
0: aware of. Uh, You sort of foreshadowed an Orwellian world in which news doesn't matter, propaganda is the truth, and whatever you say becomes accepted. And if you say it enough times and you control distribution of media, you effectively spew out propaganda. And one of the ways it seems that was undermined, I read it in your book, I Don't Know the History, was uh, striking down the fairness doctrine in the Reagan administration, the FCC struck down the fairness doctrine that led to the rise of uh, right-wing talk radio, left-wing talk radio as well, but that led to talk radio. And the fairness doctrine, if I understand it right, required if you controlled airwaves and controlled distribution, if you had a half hour dedicated to the right, you had to do a half hour to the left. Talk a little bit about if I got that right.
1: You got it right. That. Well, we can spend the rest of the afternoon talking about the fairness doctrine, and basically, it was for a long time there was a compact, not a contract, but a compact uh, between the government and commercial broadcasters, radio and television, which just what you say, to keep your license to broadcast, you had to say fairness. If you give a half hour to someone to speak for Republican, look, the fairness doctrine is not coming back. One could argue maybe we should consider it, but realistically isn't coming back. What we have to concentrate on uh, now is the, the both the ideal and the ideal of having as many opinions, as many points of view get across. Now one of the one of the things manifest today, and I could spend the rest of the afternoon talking about this. Please uh, breathe easily. I'm not going to spend the rest of the afternoon talking about it, but the, right now, somewhere between 85 and 90 percent of the true national distribution of news, the platforms for that are owned by no more than six large international corporations. Don't misread this. I'm not any capitalist I'm not any big business, but that's a reality. And what that does is it, it, it creates a, a accent, an axis, if you will, between big business and big government, whether the big government in Washington is in the hands of Republicans or Democrats, in which they serve the purposes of one another with news rather than serving the public with news. Now, what we do about that is a, is a whole other question, but to your point, that I do think it's very important, particularly in, now in the post-digital age with the growth of the internet, growth of social media, it places a greater responsibility on consumers of news. It's harder to be a, a quality consumer of news today than it's ever been. There's some great news, news places on the, on the internet and on social media, some o- over the airways. But you have to work a little harder to find them. So one of the things I liked about your book is it talked
0: about hard topics like disenfranchisement in what I found a not preachy way. And one of the topics you take on, which is a really hard topic, is inclusion. And I want to read a short passage. But you talked about Ruth Bader Ginsburg in 1980 when she came on the Supreme Court, was only the second woman ever on the Supreme Court. It's now a third female, and I would point out that venture capital partnerships are only 8% female, (laughs) um, so we have some work to do here in this room. But here's the importance I I found in your book about inclusion. You talked about a famous case in 2009, and it was a young 13-year-old girl who was strip-searched, and in the oral arguments, this room full of Supreme Court men, were skeptical that strip-searching a 13-year-old was illegal. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg said, it's a very sensitive age for a girl. And I don't think that my colleagues, some of them, quite understood that. She was credited with a surprise decision at the time that got the Supreme Court to vote 8 to 1 to make it illegal for these men to have strip-searched a 13-year-old girl. So somehow inclusion is about making sure that if you're not part of that race or gender or background that you're aware and sensitive to their issues
1: well well said and one of the things I tried to do in that chapter is point out the difference between tolerance and inclusion which is a very important difference in another place in the book I tried to point out the difference uh, uh, between compassion and empathy these these words have different meanings by dictionary definition tolerance Basically, offende means, well, the person of different color, different religion, different gender, uh, I'm going to tolerate that person." But that's different than saying, "I'm going to include that person." So there's a difference between po- tolerance and inclusion. And while tolerance is the minimum requirement of, a, of an American attitude, inclusion is the ideal, the ideal of listen. I'm just because of your color, your race, your religion. I, it's not just I'm going to tolerate you, I want to include you. And the case you pointed out, I use that case because this is points out the value that when you include people of different races, religions, uh, gender, you get a more inclusive overall. In this particular case, without a woman in the Supreme Court, they may very well have. Have ruled, well, the 13 year old girl, child, woman, maybe not all that bad with the police. I, I thought it was a very good case in point, and it's the kind of thing that if we think of term, in terms of inclusion, not just tolerance, if we think in terms of inclusion, we can have more examples going forward than that. Thank you.
0: Could you ask me one question so I could tell my parents I was interviewed by Dan Rather? <laughs>
1: Well, in in that secret place behind your heart, yeah. when you think of the country, what worries you the most right now?
0: What worries me the most is the media bubbles that we live in. In order to really understand what's going on in America and find what unites us, I think we need to better understand those people. So this idea that you talk about, about the civil rights era, era, is a speaker yesterday talked about invisibility Invisibility is when you don't see other people. And when you don't see other people, you don't know what their issues are, and you can't do anything about it. When I read J.D. Vance's book, and he wrote this book, uh, The Hillbilly Elegy, and he talked about life in Appalachia for white working class people. And honestly, those people were invisible to me. I've never been there. I can't understand it. And I connected with what their journey was. When I read Ta-Nehisi Coates' important book, Between the World and Me, Growing up in Baltimore in a black family, where he's subjected to p- the police and the things that the police do to you on one side, and gangs on the other, it's not a journey I went on. What worries me is like if we live in these media bubbles where we're not understanding and developing empathy, things won't unite us. So that's what worries me.
1: Well, uh, I'm glad I asked you the question. And by the way. If you ever want to try your hand at television, I think you'd be good at it. Thank you. I appreciate it. How about a big thank you to Dan Rather? Thank you you you. so much for that.